The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. in New York, and here is your top five at five stocks trying for a Monday melt up after Wall Street's worst week since just after the pandemic began. Stock futures, they are mildly higher. On high alert, new warnings from the State Department over Russian activity on the Ukrainian border. Call it an investor triple play as three big names call for big changes at Unilever, Kohl's, and one very beaten up bike maker. The crypto crush continues, Bitcoin hovering near its lowest level in six months. The technicals, they're not promising. Plus, call this the anti-arc, how one relatively new ETF is besting the likes of the famed Kathy Wood. It's all happening on this Monday, January 24th. And this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. As always, I am Brian Sullivan. There is a lot going on around the world on this Monday, so let us jump right in and get right to it. And we are coming off the worst week for the American stock market since the pandemic just began. The Dow dropping 4.5%. Believe it or not, that was the best-performing major index last week, the NASDAQ, fell 7.5% for its worst weekly drop since March of 2020, right as the pandemic was hitting. Same story for the S&P 500, and it's nearly 6% drop. But that was the past. Let's look ahead. Right now, futures are holding up. I'm not going to say they're soaring. They're not. They're up a couple of tenths of percent, maybe two tenths of 1%. Dow up 70 points, but they are in the green nonetheless. Now, All of you investors out there are dealing with really a triple play of tough headlines. First and foremost, of course, you've got the threat of Russia invading Ukraine. That is looming large over the world. Number two, you had the big move in bonds to kick off the year. That is slamming technology stock valuations. And three, you have some slowing earnings growth and inflation. I guess three and a half. There's also a bit of a technical breakdown, which we will talk a little bit more about in the show. But those are three big things that have the market very concerned right now. For bonds, the benchmark 10-year yield is actually slightly lower right now. So it has come down a couple of ticks off its peak of a couple of days ago. And the Russia threat, of course, a major energy story as well. Some suggesting oil could go to $100 a barrel or more very quickly if Putin decides to go into Ukraine. Oil right now is slightly higher, although couple of cents off where it was at its peak last week. Now, nothing has been worse than big crypto lately. Bitcoin down 23% this year. Ether down over 30%. Many of the smaller coins have done even worse. And all of them are down across the board right now. All right, we talked about Russia, Ukraine, the world being concerned. Let's get a check on how the world is trading. Rosanna Lockwood is in our London newsroom with an early look at that. Good morning, Rosanna. 
Good morning, Brian. Yeah, your wall of worry certainly be reflected here in Europe this morning. We've seen a lot of red across the board, inheriting a weak mixed lead from Asia. I want to take you through a couple of these bourses this morning. Now, the FTSE 100. If you can say that is an outperformer in Europe, it's only down by three quarters of a percent. That's got quite a lot to do with Unilever. I know you're covering that in the show, uh, but without Unilever, who knows where we would be elsewhere, though? Want to point out the FTSE MIB in Italy. It is down one and six tenths of a percent has been throughout the session so far on this Monday morning. Italy is heading into presidential elections for a secret balloting process starting today. So add that to your list of concerns in terms of politics. Uh, elsewhere, you've seen the CAC Cajon down by around one and a half percent. We haven't seen much movement beyond these declines throughout the session this morning. Now, there are also a couple of corporate stories we're keeping an eye across. Philips has reported a 10% slide in fourth quarter sales, but the Dutch conglomerate warning of, quote, significant volatility in the near term amid the global supply crunch. You're seeing it down there, 4.5% or so. Meantime, Renault, Nissan, Mitsubishi, that alliance set to triple its investment into electric vehicles. That's according to Reuters, citing sources familiar with the matter. And Orange set to name Crystal Haderman as its first female CEO, with the board expected to formalize her nomination on Friday. Now, Haderman would actually become only the third woman to lead a Cat Cajon listed company. Those are just a few of the corporate stories we're watching this morning. Back to you, Brian. And a little more green than red, Rosanna Lockwood. Thank you very much. All right, now let's get more on the news that has the entire world on edge right now. The threat of Russia starting perhaps a full-on land war in Europe by invading Ukraine. Bertha Coombs is here with that and more of your key headlines this morning. Bertha, good morning. Good morning, morning to you, Brian. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is doubling down on his warning against a Russian invasion of Ukraine, saying even if a single Russian force enters an in an aggressive way, it will be met with a swift, severe and united response from the U.S. and Europe. This coming as the State Department orders a do not travel alert for Ukraine amid the rising tensions, also ordering all families of embassy staff to leave the country now. Authorities in China, meantime, are lifting a month-long lockdown in the northern city of Xi'an and its 13 million residents. The news comes following the restart of commercial flights to and from the city over the weekend. The Xi'an lockdown, which began in late December, had been one of the clearest examples of China's zero-tolerance strategy toward COVID-19. The city is about 600 miles west of Beijing, where the Olympics are set to begin February 4th. And Solana, one of the largest cryptocurrency and blockchain networks, is recovering after weekend instability that saw some users unable to validate transactions on the blockchain. In a notice, the company blamed high levels of network congestion and surging demand for the breakdown. Solana is implementing new software fixes that it hopes will meet current network demand. You know, it's one of those tricky things about these cryptocurrencies. They all depend on the technology and access. I mean, I'm not saying that it's sometimes it's not hard to access cash, but that's one of the things that would make me nervous about it. Yeah, it's also they're supposed to sort of be the anti-Fed, anti-fiat currency. And yet, as we're seeing Fed concerns and inflation, the cryptos are getting hit yeah. just as well as other risk assets. It's, it's a very interesting time for crypto investors. It's a very mm -hmm. interesting time for the world, I guess. Bertha Coombs, thank you very much. Yeah. All right, let's get back down to the broader markets, which are coming off their worst week since 2020. The Nasdaq, of course, suffering the brunt of the selling now. 
Get this. According to FactSet, NASDAQ is kicking off the year with its worst start since the financial crisis all the way back in 2008 to find a worse start to a year for tech than right now. Wow. Well, this week is a heavy week for earnings. It is headlined by some of the biggest of the big, Apple and Microsoft. You've also got the Federal Reserve meeting on Tuesday and Wednesday, and they are likely to signal an interest rate hike soon. And, of course, we have the Russia threat looming well over everything. Let us bring in now Robert Teeter, head of investment policy and strategy group at Silvercrest Asset Management. Robert, good to have you on this Monday morning. I guess I'll take a bit of a, a bit of a different tact. Given everything we've just talked about, also, by the way, I sort of ignored the pandemic with Omicron running rampant across much of the United States. It's maybe you could take the view that it's a little surprising the market isn't down more. Yeah, good morning, Brian, and thank you. It is a really challenging time, so I think you could make that point. Um, I think there are a couple of corrections going on here. I think there's a correction in the end of the pandemic story, um, which you referenced with some of the move away from companies that aren't supported by fundamentals. And that change in Fed policy, I think, has really pulled the rug out from under those types of stories. I think you've also had a massive rebalancing story, which is to say that with the Omicron wave, which hasn't been as much in the headlines lately because it's been crowded out by other news, geopolitical news like you referenced, uh, it is still going to make the economic data challenging over the next few months. There will be a, a loss in economic activity from Omicron. There probably will be an increase in inflation. And that gives us a tight window here where we have a couple of months of probably not great news on the economic front and the inflation front. Longer term, I think it's a better picture, but I think you're absolutely right. This is a very challenging environment here. Okay, so let's talk about what we know. The market prices in what we know and what it expects. We know, okay, that the Fed is likely to raise rates this year. They've basically told us the dot plots say it. So the Fed, while a big deal, should be a known known. You've got the sort of known unknown about Vladimir Putin in Ukraine, what will he actually do? And hopefully, fingers crossed, it looks like we are seeing some turn down in the pandemic as bad as it is in the South and parts of the Midwest and West right now. It looks like we are, fingers crossed, starting to roll over. So, Robert, knowing all of that, how do you see the next few months in terms of risk? Yeah, it's a great question, Brian. And I, I do think the next few weeks are going to be challenging and risky. But I think what you touched on at the end there, the end of the pandemic in the way that it has been occurring, is going to be very positive. I do think that that will help alleviate inflation concerns. I think that will take some pressure off the Fed. And I think as we get these millions of workers back to work, that's going to provide some underlying economic strength. So I do think over the course of several months throughout the year, uh, we do see a good picture for earnings. We do see a good picture for the economy. Yeah. It's just that we're going through a tough transition right now. So, so quickly as we wrap, Robert, where do we invest right now? What are you advising your clients to do? Well, anytime there are these tricky transitions, I think it's important to have balance. And I think that's the case here. So I think some exposure to the cyclical areas that have pricing power uh, are able to defend profit margins. Those things like industrials and materials is, is great. Another area that we think is very strong is the sort of what I would call the real technology companies, the companies with real earnings, real business models uh, that have continued to deliver regardless of what the environment is. So I think that balance still remains very important here. Robert Teeter, Silvercrest. Robert, I know it's early on a Monday. Really appreciate you getting up for us here. It's an important time. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you, Brian. All right. 
Oh, you're very welcome. We have got a lot more to do on this busy Monday morning and coming up why your next guest says the recent crypto crush could actually be a good thing. Plus, much more on what is likely the biggest threat to the markets, your money, and the world right now. Atlantic Council's Fred Kemp is here with the latest on Russia. And then Nelson Peltz's newest boardroom target. And once again, the billionaire is going big. We'll tell you who he is targeting next. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome or welcome back and good Monday morning. And we are seeing stock futures turn a little bit into the red. They were up a couple of tenths of 1%. But as we've told you a million times, if we told you once this hour, stock futures are very, very volatile. We are seeing those futures down a bit right now. Could be another tough day. By the way, as we said, the toughest start to a week to a year since the financial crisis. All right. In other news, Bitcoin is attempting to find its footing. That after the cryptocurrency was swept along with a sell-off in stocks last week, Bitcoin right now is back below that 35,000 mark after sort of bouncing, testing, and bouncing off of 34,000 over the weekend. Bitcoin overall has lost nearly half its value since hitting that all-time high of around 69,000 back on November 10th. But the declines are not limited just to Bitcoin. Check out this chart, courtesy of CoinGecko, as of Friday, the total market cap of the entire crypto complex has fallen by more than $1 trillion. And many of the smaller crypto assets are down more than 60 or even more than 70%. For more insight, let us check back in with Dominic Dantas. He is market analyst at CoinDesk, a technician by trade. Dominic, great to have you back on the program Because I'm looking at the charts. I don't know as much as you do, but the chart to me, technically, I think the term is ugly. What are you seeing? And let's start with Bitcoin. What are you seeing technically? Any support, meaningful support anywhere? Yeah, the supports have uh, totally broken down over the past few days. We had support around 40K. That was very minor, um, and that was broken down because sellers remained active. The last time I was on this show, I talked about that declining trend of lower highs since the November peak of 69K, um, and that's been pretty persistent throughout. We've had oversold signals for a while since December. But you got to remember, in a downtrend, oversold signals you know, tend to be very short-term in nature, and you're looking for that real capitulation. We haven't really seen that yet. 
So there was some minor support around 37K. You know, price might bounce back around there, uh, but it's very choppy, very volatile, just like traditional markets, as you said, in the futures. Um, so there is risk of a further pullback towards the previous low, which was around 30K. That's pretty critical. And if you break through 30K, that's an indication of a trend shift from, bear, from bullish to bearish. Um, and that's very similar to 2018. So I'm monitoring that very carefully. Um, there is n- really no signs of short capitulation at this point. So it could be very rocky going forward. So 30K, not 34, but 30 would be to you sort of the next major, major test for, for Bitcoin. Yeah, that's definitely stronger support. You know, right now you're looking at these very short term support levels and those pretty much favor like the intraday traders and things like that. So you're looking for brief price bounces or stabilization over those points. But for the longer term traders, um, you know, you look for those stronger support levels that have been retested previous times. Um, and another way to look at it is where levels where previously resistance becomes stronger support. And you look at longer term trend gauges uh, like longer term moving averages or different indicators that you can use. And what they do is to define the long-term trend. So you look for those lower or higher lows over the longer period of time, and 30K is right around there. Um, so if you break through that on, on a consistent basis, you maybe look for two weekly consecutive closes below that level. That would indicate some trend weakness, um, which really means that upside going from there is very limited over the intermediate term, at least. What the crypto crew will tell you, and they are correct, by the way, in this, Dominic, is that nothing defines crypto like volatility. We've had 50, 60, 80 percent drops in Bitcoin over the past decade or longer. Back when it was a dollar, it would go down to 10 cents and then it would go up to 30 dollars and back down to five bucks. That this is nothing new and they are hodlers. They're going to hold on for dear life. Is this I don't want to call it a flush. Is this selling perhaps in any way positive, in a sense that, again, it kind of forces out the weaker hands and consolidates the market a little bit, or am I just looking for something positive on a Monday morning? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, definitely. You have these long-term traders. It's a very sentiment-driven market. Uh, You know, traders and investors tend to stack up when the price declines at an extreme level. So just like on the upside, the same for the downside. I always say, you know, flip the chart over (laughs) as a technician when you're in the extreme moments. And, you know, it it tends to show the same thing and it removes the bias. Uh, So there's a lot of folks that are looking probably to buy back in around the 20 to 30K range. Um, and that could be that could be it. And, and you, you, we had these like extreme upside moves over the past year, 2020, of course. Um, and that's like extreme greed and frothiness in the market. And, you know, now you kind of see that retest, that flush out of the, of the hands, like you said. Um, so it's healthy, yeah. you know, and over the longer term, volatility and those crazy market environments have deteriorated and it's become more of a mature market. Uh, So we're looking for some of that uh, sentiment to come through, conviction on these lower support levels to come through. You know, time will tell. Yeah, you know what? And And I love that line of thinking because we're always asking, why is it falling? Maybe we should have asked, why is it accelerating so quickly last year? And what's the risk there? We never talk about the wild upside moves, just wild downside. They've got the same psychology behind them. Dominic Dantas. Coindesk, Dominic, a pleasure. Thank you very much. Watching 30K and maybe 20 below that. Dominic, thanks. All right, on deck. Will we get our first Fed rate hike in four years when the Fed meets on Wednesday? Or 
Does America's crushing national debt mean Jay Powell and company have to be a lot more passive than we think? Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. economist, Ellen Zentner, is here. We're going to head to break with futures down just a touch, oil flat to slightly higher, bond yields actually ticking down a bit. We will see you on the other side of this break. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Right, welcome or welcome back. Good Monday morning. It is 523 here on the East Coast. All right, time now for a very special edition of Big Money Movers. Three stock stories that everybody, at least on CNBC, will be talking about today. And today, it is all about some big-name investors taking on even bigger boardrooms. Stock number one, Peloton. The hits just keep on coming here. Sources tell CNBC investment manager Blackwell's Capital, which has less than a stake of 5%, is pushing for Peloton to fire its chairman and CEO, John Foley, and to consider selling the entire company. Shares of Peloton have come apart lately, down more than 77% in the past six months. No comment from Peloton, Blackwell's, or Foley just yet. Foley, by the way, and a few others have super voting shares of the stock, which means it would take significant pressure and stakes from other shareholders to make any changes at the company. Stock number two, Kohl's and a possible bidding war. Just days after a reported $64 billion, $64 billion, $64 per share bid from a consortium backed by Starboard Value Partners. Now private equity firm Sycamore Partners is also reportedly preparing an offer and according to Reuters, the potential offer values Kohl's at $9 billion, or at least $65 per share. And number three, Nelson Peltz's hedge fund Tryan Partners has reportedly built a sizable stake in Unilever. That is part of a possible bid to ratchet up pressure on the consumer goods company. Now, while the size and stake and timing of the buying are not known, the move comes amid Unilever's failed $68 billion bid for GSK's consumer health business. Remember, back in 2017, Peltz and Tryon bought into Unilever rival Procter & Gamble, narrowly winning a board seat there in what was, at the time, the most expensive proxy fight in American history. Peltz loves consumer products companies, and he has also served on the boards of Mondelez and Heinz. All right, let's get a check now on some of this morning's other key headlines, including what was a simply insane, action-packed weekend of playoff football we're all exhausted. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York now with more. I, I, just give the Super Bowl to the Chiefs of the Bills. 
That was insane, Francis. I know, right? All the yelling in my house. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. But let's start off with the United Arab Emirates that intercepted two ballistic missiles over its capital, Abu Dhabi, this morning. According to the Ministry of Defense, they were fired by the Houthi terrorist militia. There were no casualties from the attack, but fragments of ballistic missiles fell in different areas. Opening statements begin today in the federal trial of three former Minneapolis police officers who were at the scene as George Floyd was killed. Two Tau, Thomas Lane and J. Alexander King are charged with depriving Floyd of his constitutional rights by failing to administer medical aid to him. King and Tao are also charged with failing to intervene when Derek Chauvin knelt on Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes, which resulted in his death in May of 2020. And out of that action, then there were four. A wild weekend in the NFL with divisional round games coming down to the wire. From the 19 in 17 seconds. Down the middle to the end zone. And there it is. In a fourth quarter full of lead changes, the Bills got ahead with 13 seconds left, only for the Chiefs to storm downfield and force overtime. In OT, Kansas City got the ball and didn't let go of it. The Chiefs now on their way to a fourth straight AFC title game with that 42-36 win. Earlier in the, in the day, Tom Brady and the Bucks erased a 24-point lead but left the Rams a little too much time on the clock. Matthew Stafford led Los Angeles down the field and a game-winning kick eliminated the defending chance. The Bucks stops for Tampa Bay and Tom Brady and the Rams win it. 30 to 27. So here's the playoff picture. The Chiefs could go to their third straight Super Bowl if they win. And a Rams win means L.A. plays the Super Bowl at home. So, Ryan, that is the action. Those are your headlines for this Monday morning. I think they scored 25 points in two and a half minutes or something like that. And then everybody's screaming that they have to change the overtime rules because they got the coin flip and they scored, and Buffalo never even had a chance, which is kind of a terrible way to go out. Thoughts to Buffalo, by the way. they got to be a lot of broken hearts up there. Francis, oh, 100%. All right. Have a good one. Yeah, but Buffalo, we got you. We're thinking about you. It's, uh, I know, but you got, you got a good young team, and you will be back. All right, coming up, we're going to be back after this break, and your morning RBI will show you how President Biden's first year in office stacks up stock-wise. And as we head to break, a check on last week's worst performers on the Dow and the S&P, Goldman, Disney, Boeing, and others. And we are back right after this. Could it be another tough week of trading? The market's having the worst start to a year since the financial crisis and futures. They're losing steam this morning. The White House making threats of sanctions or more to Russia over Ukraine. But is the rest of Europe even on board? The Atlantic Council's Fred Kemp is here. Why Biden should look to the past to confront Putin. And betting against Kathy Wood? Paying off for one ETF as its anti-ARC strategy sees some big money pouring in. It is all happening on this Monday, January 24th. And this is Worldwide Exchange. All right, welcome or welcome back, and good Monday morning, everybody. It is 5.31. Hope you had a great start to your week. And by the way, we're all probably exhausted if you watched those amazing football games yesterday. So a double thank you for getting up early and joining us. All right, I wish I had something better to tell you, but we are coming off the worst week for the U.S. stock market since the pandemic began. The Dow down 4.5% last week, and believe it or not, 
That was the best-performing major index. The Nasdaq 100 dropped nearly 8% for its worst start to a year since 2008. And right now, we are seeing futures sell. Not a lot, but they are down a tick or two. They were green when we got on the show this morning. Now they're in the red a little bit, so stock futures certainly something to watch. All right, we'll get back to the markets and your money in a moment. But as always, let's get a check down, get you caught up on some of this morning's big headlines. Bertha Coombs is here now with those. Bertha. Hey, good morning, Brian. The ongoing inflation surge could push the Federal Reserve to get even more aggressive with its rate hike strategy this year. That, according to Goldman Sachs in a new note over the weekend, ahead of the FOMC's latest policy meeting, which kicks off tomorrow. While the central bank is not expected to raise rates uh, this week, it is expected to roll out four rate hikes this year. Goldman says the spread of Omicron and its impact on price increases could push the Fed into a fast pace of increases and raises the risks of more than four hikes this year. A growing number of blank check companies, meantime, appear to be abandoning their bids for deals before they've even begun. According to the Financial Times, since the start of this month, seven SPACs have informed the SEC that they're canceling plans for IPOs. That after five SPACs withdrew their plans last month. That's compared to the three withdrawals for the first 11 months of 2021. And the once red-hot area has faced waning investor enthusiasm in recent months due to a combination of poor performance and more regulatory scrutiny. CNBC Postback Index is down 24% so far this year and 41% over the last six months. Another ETF that has been down is the ARC, Kathy Wood's ARC Innovations, and a fund aimed at shorting that. It, well, that strategy is seeing a boom in popularity. The Tuttle Capital Short Innovation ETF, Tucker S-A-R-K, RK rather, has now accumulated $234 million in assets, according to Bloomberg, with about $200 million of that coming from inflows. The fund, which only debuted back in November, is up 57% since then, while Woods Arc Innovation ETF is down 42% over the same time. Looks like a pretty good hedge, Brian. Isn't that amazing? I mean, how sentiment changes. Everybody was into the Arc, and now we they're not only out of the Arc, but they're betting against the Arc, and everybody's into the, the anti-Arc bet. Yeah. I'm not even sure what I just said. Yeah, well... It's one of those big changes, almost like all of those games where you thought, oh, it's going one way. And with 45 seconds left, yeah. it's a totally different score at the end of the thing. It's been a wild, wild kind ride. Kind of like last night. Yep. Bertha Coombs, thank you very much. Yeah. All right. On a much more serious note, the situation with Russia on the border of Ukraine is growing more tense by the day. Over the weekend, U.S. government advising families of American embassy workers to begin leaving the country. It's unconcerned that an all-out war could start if and when Vladimir Putin sends Russian troops into Ukraine. Meantime, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is set to meet with his European Union counterparts today on how to handle Russia's aggressions. Speaking with NBC News yesterday, Blinken stressed that any response by the U.S. will be a strong one. In the event that there is a renewed Russian uh, incursion, Russian forces going into Ukraine, uh, there is going to be a swift 
a severe and united response. We're short of sending forces into Ukraine again uh, to try to destabilize or topple the government, right. uh, cyber attacks, uh, hybrid means, etc. And there, uh, we've also been clear, there'll be a swift response, there'll be a calibrated response, there'll be a, a united response. Now, President Biden has warned of sanctions on Russia if it invades, but many doubt that that threat could be taken seriously by Putin because much of Europe may not get on board for fear that Russia could cut off its important natural gas supplies. In Germany, one of their leading naval officers was forced to resign over the weekend by saying that Putin, quote, deserve respect. Your next guest says that Biden needs to look at history to try to help resolve this tense situation. Fred Kemp is the president and CEO of the Atlantic Council and a CNBC contributor. Fred, first off, uh, we hear those words by the Secretary of State, swift, severe, and united. Uh, maybe swift. I'm not sure how severe, and it is unclear how united it might be because the rest of Europe seems to be very quiet on this matter. So, Brian, good morning. Um, you know, people said it was a gaffe last week when President Biden said uh, that Putin could uh, undertake an incursion or an invasion that would be minor and that it could divide allies. Well, I think that's not a mistake at all. I think he spoke the truth. That could be the outcome. Uh, what the Biden administration has done, and they should be praised for this, is they haven't in intensified their engagement with allies. They've drawn up a list of very tough sanctions. They know that in 2014, when they were in the Obama administration, and many of these uh, Biden officials were in the Obama administration, the 2014 sanctions just didn't go far enough. Uh, they need to make um, these, this a deterrent, and that will only be a deterrent if it's unbearable to, to Putin. Uh, you could go at secondary date debt markets. You could do export controls, getting at everything from uh, consumer electronics uh, to uh, aviation systems. Uh, you could go after major banks' access to markets. Uh, that is the only thing that would come even close uh, to making this unbearable for Putin, yeah. even that would not be enough. Well, to your point, Fred, if the 2014 sanctions did not work, and it appears that they haven't because we are here once again and Europe is even more under the knife of the Russian natural gas hold, uh, why do we think that it would work this time? What, does, what exactly does Vladimir Putin have to lose right now? At the moment, I don't think he's seen enough to make him change whatever plans he has. And he has uh, not only amassed 106,000 troops, he has a major military um, uh, 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 practice in, on the country of Belarus where he's moved a lot of weaponry forward that would be used for such an invasion. I don't think we've changed his calculus yet. My own view is one should have front-voted the sanctions. He's escalated, we should have escalated. Uh, we should have moved more troops forward to allied countries, uh, meaning NATO countries that are on uh, uh, Putin's borders. We've said we're going to do that if he invades, but what good does it do after he's invaded? I think we need, need sharper deterrent now. I think the uh, administration has been reluctant to do that for fear that they would provoke Putin. But you look at 2008 in the Bush administration, yeah. when he takes parts of Georgia. 2014 takes parts of Ukraine. I think you're right, Brian. I don't see anything yet uh, that we've offered that would make him change his calculus. And we can ship liquefied natural gas to Poland, as we have been. We've been talking with Qatar about maybe having some emergency supplies. But Germany does not have an LNG import port on the water. They cannot. 
You know, they could literally have people freeze to death if Vladimir Putin cuts off the tap there. Anyway, over the weekend, you wrote an excellent piece. You said that President Biden needs to channel his inner Harry Truman, perhaps one of the more underrated presidents of all time. What did you mean by that? What type of Truman-esque diplomacy does Biden need to show right now, Fred? Well, the reason I made that comparison is 1947-1950. You can compare that time to this time because it was a pivotal time in global history coming right after World War II. And Truman had problems in his Democratic Party between progressives and uh, and, and, and more conservative uh, Southern Democrats. The uh, Republican Party was torn between isolationists and, and people who wanted to do international engagement. So it all sounds familiar. But despite that, he went ahead with the Marshall Plan. There was a Berlin airlift that saved the freedom of Berlin against the Soviet blockade. And you created uh, uh, NATO in 1949. What Biden has shown is he recognizes he's at an inflection point that's similar. He's called it a, a test between democracies and autocracies, and that's China and Russia. But he hasn't followed up yet with the sorts of actions that, that Truman did to actually shift history uh, in, the, uh, in the direction of freedom at that point and really set history on its course for the end of the Cold War uh, many years later, a generation later. That's what Biden yep. needs to do right now, and he hasn't done it yet. That's the reason I wrote that, uh, that op-ed for CNBC. Well, I urge everybody to read it. It's on CNBC.com. Fred Kemp of the Atlantic Council, a very critical, a very tense time right now. We'll see how Europe responds, if at all. Fred, thank you very much. Always good to talk. All right on deck. Shares. Thank you, Fred. Us as well. All right on deck. Shares of Netflix suffering their biggest plunge in a decade. Slowing demand, hammering the streaming giant. Why its uphill battle may only be getting started. Futures, they've turned down. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about media, movies, China, and Netflix, because there is a lot going on in media right now around the world. First, Netflix shares crushed last week, losing about $49 billion in value. That is the entire market value of Zoom. Also happening, China blocking more and more American movies, including all four of the latest Marvel releases from Disney. Let's talk about it with Sarah Fisher, media reporter at Axios. I loved your piece on China. Get to that in a minute, Sarah. Let's talk about Netflix. Uh, Netflix... A darling. Everybody loved it. Investors loved it. Actors love it. Producers love it. They spend a lot of money, maybe overspend on content. How does this reckoning, if you will, by Netflix change the media landscape, if at all, by the way? It's a great question, Brian. Really what it does is it sends a big signal out to anyone who's in subscription streaming that there might be a slowdown to come. Analysts, who have to remember, took down stock values, not just from Netflix in response to the news, but also competitors like Roku, Disney, and even AT&T. And so what it signals is that Netflix forever was sort of the litmus test for how growth was planning out across the industry. Netflix is always the first to report earnings amongst the streamers. And now there's some concerns that others might not be able to grow as quickly because there's just so much saturation, especially here in the North American market, Brian, you're starting to see streamers say, look, we didn't add any or if so just a little bit of subscribers here in this region. And that matters because this is the most lucrative region. This is where you can get the most money per subscriber in the world. And if folks are going to want to try to grow abroad, as Netflix is doing now, analysts are sounding the alarm saying that's going to be a lot harder than you imagined because people aren't willing to pay as much overseas. And they might not even have the technological infrastructure to get the same type yeah. of streaming. 
Well, you look at what's happening with streaming, Sarah. I think it was comedian Jim Gaffigan, if it wasn't, I apologize, whoever it was, who tweeted out a couple of days ago, how about we bundle all the streaming services together and call it cable? Now, he was meant it as a joke, obviously, but we get the sort of point here that the industry, when you fire up your Roku or your Apple TV or whatever it is, it kind of looks like cable. Where does this all shake out? Yeah, well, the latest data from research giant Magid says that the average household is willing to pay for about four services and no more than about $10 each service, so about $40 a month for streaming. I think consumers like having the choice. They like the fact that they can do an a la carte streaming budget. Maybe they get Apple. Maybe they cancel it when they're done with Ted Lasso. Maybe they get Netflix. Maybe they cancel it when they're done with Squid Game. So I don't think this is going to fundamentally change. But what I do think is going to happen is there's going to be consolidation amongst the biggest players. If people are only willing to pay for about four services a month, and again, North America, the most lucrative market, I don't think you're going to have room for there to be seven or eight large-scale services. So I think the next step is what are companies that have low-hanging fruit, who do they sell to, and how do these services consolidate? And maybe they need contra. I hate to say it because that you, to your point, Sarah, you sign up for something, you binge watch it, you cancel it, you sign up for the other one, you binge watch it, you cancel it. I'm told. Sarah, we, we, we don't have time to get to China, which is why I asked you on. We'll get you back on to talk more about that because that story is not going away. Sarah Fisher of Axios, always doing great reporting. Sarah, thank you. Thank you. All right, on deck. With the one-year anniversary of President Biden in the White House, how does his stock market record stack up against history? We're going to show you. Plus, Morgan Stanley's Ellen Zentner lays out what to expect this week's big Fed meeting. Futures, they are down. Dow futures off more than 100. NASDAQ as well. Could be another tough Monday. Grab a coffee. We're back right after this. Welcome back. Time for your morning RBI. Today, it's all about a little presidential stock market history because President Biden just celebrated one year in office and he had a pretty good stock market run in that time. Over his first year, LPL Financial notes the Dow rose 12.3 percent. We look at the Dow and, by the way, not other indexes because the Dow has been around a lot longer. So there's more history to compare. So how does that 12.3 percent return compare to other presidents first years? LPL notes that Biden's market year would come in ninth. Not bad. It's in the top half, anyway, the 21 presidents since the Dow existed. So now I know you're thinking 12% is pretty good. So who's on top? Well, let's quickly show you. Here we go. The fifth best first year belongs to LBJ with a 24.8% return in 1963. Number four, the aforementioned Harry Truman, 1945's 31%. Third is Trump, beating Truman by 1%. Second best, exactly eight years before that, with President Biden's 33 point, or President Obama's 33.4% first year Dow return. All pretty good. But none of those are even remotely close to the top spot, which LPL notes is the incredible 91% return from FDR's first year in office in 1933. Of course, that is coming during the Depression and the big market drops ahead of it, but still... It is pretty incredible. And if I just had to guess, just a random guess, my guess is that's a record that will never be broken. Random, but historical. All right, unfortunately, this past year is shaping up to be one of the top ones for something else. That is inflation right now running hotter than any time since Ronald Reagan's second year in office. So this week is a big one because the Federal Reserve meets for the first time this year 
And your next guess expects they will not raise rates at this meeting, but they will all but hold up a sign and hit us over the head with it that a rate hike is coming in March. Ellen Zentner is chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley and joins us now. Ellen, thank you. Uh, you think March is the first go date for higher rates? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think, you know, from market pricing, you can see that markets expect that as well. So as you put it, the Fed doesn't really need to hit the markets over the head uh, by signaling this March hike. What they need to do is just deliver on that expectation. And what do you mean by deliver? What would threading the market needle perfectly look like for Jay Powell and company? What do they need to we know what they're probably going to do. What do they need to say? It's the words that matter, Ellen, as you know. Yeah, so I think in the statement itself, uh, they need to basically say, we're knocking on the door of full employment. We've met our mandates, and it will soon be appropriate uh, to uh, begin lifting rates. I think what they avoid saying is just as important as what they do say. Uh, and that is that I think that they'll avoid using the words measured or gradual because that does that is taken as a guarantee of the pace. And that's what they need to remain flexible on. Uh, and so measured is that 25 basis points uh, every uh, meeting uh, that was used back in 2004. Uh, gradual is every other meeting. So at those four major meetings a year, but they don't know when they're going to deliver the hikes at which meeting. So you want ultimate flexibility. So Chair Powell in the Q&A can remind us that every meeting is live. So what they're telling us at this week's meeting is simply, look, we're going to start hiking in March, but we don't know how many and we don't know when. And there is, Ellen, a lot of talk about a more hawkish Fed. You've heard the numbers. Some people say four rate hikes. You got some people on the street saying eight or nine, whatever it may be. Here's what I haven't heard anybody talk about is national debt. When interest rates go up, it costs more for the U.S. government, i.e. taxpayers, i.e. all of our viewers and listeners right now, to pay those interest payments. We have never had debt like this. We've added trillions in debt since the last rate hike cycle in 2018. Is there a, is there a level of hawkishness they can only get to, even if they wanted to go more aggressive, Ellen, because the U.S. government could never pay the debt? So it's a good question, Brian. I do get that question uh, quite often. Um, the way I would view it is that uh, the higher the debt uh, as a share of our economy, uh, the lower the neutral rate uh, in the U.S. And so what that means is it doesn't mean the Fed can't raise rates at all. It means that every 25 basis point hike they deliver is that much more impactful. And so it argues for... Uh, a, a gradual removal uh, of policy accommodation. Um, and it requires Chair Powell, as he's reminded us, it requires a very lengthy cycle. Um, now he's looking for something, you know, on the order of 10 years plus as the last two cycles have been. I don't think we're gonna get as long of a cycle. And so I don't know that the Fed's gonna be able to get as far off of zero as they'd like. Um, but if you do it in a predictable way, uh, be very flexible, and stretch the cycle so you have a long time to lift rates, um, then you will get them yeah. as far as you can. But debt is that that moderating factor of how far you can go. Could we get to a 3% 10-year anytime in the next couple of years, Ellen, at all? 
I think in the next couple of years you could. I'm glad you didn't ask 4%. Ben Bernanke said not in his lifetime, and I think he'll live a long time, and he'll definitely be right. Ellen Zentner of Morgan Stanley. Ellen, appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right, Ellen, nailed it. you got to watch the language coming out on Wednesday, folks. It is all about the Fed's words. All right, we're done with our words. We will see you tomorrow morning as well. And unfortunately, I'm leaving you with stock futures that are in the red. Not a lot, but they are in the red as well as the NASDAQ gets off to its worst start since 2008. A lot more to do. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. Squawk is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.